Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The entire Gaza Strip at war as Israeli troops move further south. What Israeli forces plan to do next? House Speaker Mike Johnson confident about an upcoming Biden impeachment inquiry. Find out why he called the move a necessary step. Are we seeing a failing presidential campaign? Former President Trump is taking shots at candidate Ron DeSantis. What Trump says about his rival, even comparing him to a wounded animal. The Pentagon lowers the number of myocarditis cases reported after the COVID-19 vaccine. The revised numbers on the heart inflammation uptick after the mandate vaccine. An alleged terrorist attack in Paris. A German tourist is dead and the suspect may have links to ISIS. What we know so far. For holidays in one parade. Check out the music, festivities and good cheer at one-of-a-kind event in Philadelphia. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We open with more updates on the war between Israel and Hamas. The Israeli military is expanding its operations into southern Gaza. The military told Gaza residents in specific neighborhoods in the south to evacuate. Israel warned that the main humanitarian corridor that goes through Gaza is now a battlefield and asked people not to use it any longer. As fighting expands in the Gaza Strip, it's getting harder for aid delivery to reach some areas. The United Nations says more than 80% of Gaza's population is displaced. The head of Israel's domestic security agency says his organization is prepared to destroy Hamas in every place, including in other Middle Eastern countries. And inside Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial has resumed. His lengthy trial, which began in 2020, was paused after the Hamas attack. Netanyahu denies any wrongdoing. And strong words from Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. He said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would eventually be tried as a war criminal over Israel's military action in Gaza. The Turkish president also condemned Western countries for continuing to support Israel. At a speech in Istanbul today, Erdogan said Western support was giving, quote, unconditional support to kill babies, unquote. Erdogan added that Western support made the countries complicit in the crimes. Turkey supports a two-state solution to the decades-old conflict in the region. Erdogan drew a comparison between Netanyahu and former Yugoslav president Slobodan Milosevic, who was tried for, the gen for genocide and war crimes. Unlike most of its Western allies and some Gulf states, NATO member Turkey does not view Hamas as a terrorist group. The country also hosts some of the group's members. Tense moments in the Red Sea yesterday. Yemen's Houthi rebels fired missiles and struck three commercial ships. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the maritime attacks linked to the Israel-Hamas war. The U.S. military says its warship shot down three drones in self-defense during the hours-long assault. The Iranian-backed Houthis claimed two of the attacks. The strikes marked an escalation in such assaults at sea, as multiple vessels found themselves in the crosshairs of a single Houthi assault for the first time in the conflict. 
The U.S. vowed to consider all appropriate responses in the wake of the attack and labeled the assaults a direct threat to international commerce and maritime security. The U.S. called out Iran, saying it has every reason to believe the attacks were fully enabled by the Islamic Republic. The Israeli army also blamed Iran, saying the weapons, intelligence and methods the Houthis used to carry out the attacks are Iranian. This shows the negative Iranian subversion in the region, and it's a global problem, a regional problem, and we need to see how the world responds to this. The freedom of sailing is becoming dangerous in this part of the world. The attack started in Houthi-controlled Sana'a, Yemen's capital, at around 9.15 a.m. Sunday, local time. Two of the ships struck by missiles were flying under Panama's flag, one under Bahamas' flag. No casualties were reported, according to U.S. Central Command. U.S. Central Command is one of the 11 unified combatant commands of the Department of Defense. Its area of responsibility includes the Middle East, Central Asia, and parts of South Asia. Its top two command priorities are to one, deter Iran, and two, counter violent extremist organizations. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Earlier I spoke with Kyle Scheidler, Homeland Security Counterterrorism Analyst at the Center for Security Policy, about these attacks that are unprecedented in the current Middle East war. Kyle Scheiler, thank you for joining us. Describe for us the events that happened in the Red Sea yesterday. So yesterday in the Red Sea, we had a um, effort by the uh, Houthi organization. It's a Shiite, uh, essentially terrorist organization, although the U.S. government no longer lists them as such. And they conducted a missile and drone attack against civilian shipping and apparently U.S. naval vessels. Uh, the U.S. responded with uh, anti-missile systems and defended some of those ships, some of those civilian ships took, uh, took damage. Tell us more about what happened to the U.S. military vessel. Well, we, uh, we know that the USS Kearney uh, responded with anti-missile uh, systems to defend civilian ships and apparently opened fire on a drone uh, that was launched uh, from Yemen. Um, we don't know yet um, exactly the circumstances of that, um, but so far, no, you know, no damage to U.S. vessels. Uh, some damage to civilian vessels. All right, and what's been the response of U.S. officials to this so far? Uh, unfortunately, it's been fairly limited. I mean, we are not seeing a robust response uh, from the U.S. government. Uh, the defense of shipping lanes and sea lanes is a primary U.S. national interest. Uh, this has been the case uh, since the founding of the country. We take the defense of sea lanes very, very seriously, or at least we're supposed to. Uh, but in this case, uh, the Biden administration has been very reluctant to respond aggressively against Houthis attack, Houthi attacks uh, on shipping in the Red Sea. And so, unfortunately, the Houthis continue to escalate there. And what explains that reluctance? Well, part of it, I think, was the decision by the Biden administration to uh, first, uh, when they came into office, delist uh, the Houthi organization as a terrorist organization in response to a decision by the Trump administration to list them as a terrorist organization. This was really, in part, I think, uh, an opening gambit for their efforts uh, to reestablish the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but we also know uh, that the Biden administration uh, ended U.S. support for the Saudi campaign against the Houthis um, 
again, probably as part of that support for Iran nuclear deal. As a result, the Houthis have been allowed to rearm. They have been allowed to improve their military and drone capabilities. And that we're now seeing the result of that. And just staying with the Houthis, um, they claimed responsibility for the attack in the Red Sea on the civilian vessels, but they didn't acknowledge aiming at the U.S. military vessel. What could be behind their silence on this? Well, that's a good question. I mean, they want to keep uh, rhetorically, they want to keep the focus on Israel. Uh, that is their claimed uh, reason for opening fire on these civilians. They claim their links to the Israeli government. Uh, that's not really clear. They're not Israeli flagged vessels. They're not Israeli run uh, shipping companies for the most part. Uh, so it's it's sort of a, a fig leaf there. Um, but they haven't so far. Um, they want to keep that as the focus of their campaign for propaganda reasons. How should U.S. How should the U.S. respond to this attack? And yet, the dozens of other attacks on U.S. military bases that we've been seeing in the past several weeks. I mean, our our defense of our uh, U.S. troops in areas like Syria and Iraq, and our defensive shipping in the Red Sea has been really anemic. I think I read earlier that we've responded to maybe one in seven attacks uh, on us or our interests in the region, and they have been very, very. Uh, as I said earlier, anemic, uh, targeting um, facilities that are empty, uh, not targeting uh, live uh, individuals, not targeting leadership. In my opinion, uh, we need a strong strike that will send the message, not just to the proxies, but to Iran itself, uh, that we will not tolerate further escalation. I'm thinking of something along the lines of what the Trump administration did in targeting uh, IRC, IRGC General Soleimani, uh, that was a message the Iranians could not ignore, and they did not ignore, uh, and it did set them back in terms of their strategy for the region. So something like that uh, would really let them know uh, that we're done playing around. All right, Kyle Scheidler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The White House says it needs more money to support Ukraine. This as senators are, settling, are setting conditions for aid to Israel. They want Israel to limit civilian casualties in Gaza. The White House sent a letter to congressional leaders warning the administration will run out of money to support Ukraine. That's if Congress doesn't allocate new funding by the end of the year. The letter states that there is no magical pot of funding available and that the administration is out of money and nearly out of time. Meanwhile, in the Senate, liberal lawmakers are setting conditions for Israel in exchange for aid. Senator Bernie Sanders and others say Israel must limit civilian deaths in Gaza. They want Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to ensure he'll aim to do that. The senators warned President Biden's national security team that aid to Israel must be met with such assurances. Sanders said the time for asking nicely is over, adding that financial aid is the leverage the U.S. holds against Israel. Lawmakers are also working on a bill to address border security. Republican Senator James Lankford told ABC that lawmakers are making progress with that. We are making progress on this. This is exceptionally important. When uh, the administration actually put out their national security package, they asked for funding for Israel, for Ukraine, for Taiwan, and for the border. And then literally two days later, after they put that proposal out in their request, they also put out a piece uh, saying that the border funding element would be, quote, unquote, this was their term, a tourniquet. The senator went on to say that what's really needed is a policy change, not just more funding. Lankford says the U.S. has to handle the process of all individual immigrants properly and not just mass-release thousands of people. 
House Speaker Mike Johnson gave an update on a planned impeachment inquiry into President Biden over the weekend. Johnson says he thinks the House has enough votes to formally launch an inquiry without support from any Democrats. Johnson called the move a necessary step. The House Speaker told Fox News that the White House has been stonewalling committees investigating the Biden family. We have checks written to Joe Biden that the Oversight Committee has found in the banking records, $40,000 from China, $200,000 from a now bankrupt healthcare company that his brother James Biden apparently swindled. But the evidence is so clear you cannot look away. Johnson is accusing the Biden administration of withholding thousands of pages of evidence and preventing at least two or three DOJ witnesses from testifying. He says a formal floor vote on the inquiry will allow committees to move forward. Republicans have signaled that a formal impeachment inquiry against Biden could be launched as soon as this week. President Biden's brother, James Biden, is set to appear before the GOP-led panel on Wednesday. Hunter Biden is scheduled for a closed-door deposition next week. Tensions in Iowa are building. Former President Trump campaigning in the Hawkeye state over the weekend. Trump commented on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign, saying the governor's bid might soon be over. This as DeSantis' poll numbers keep going down and Trump's numbers keep rising. And we hit him very hard, and he's, uh, he's been falling out of the air like a very seriously wounded bird, right, to the ground. And it's a very pleasant thing to see. Now, it looks like he's gonzo, but we never want to say that we got to get this thing finished. The comments come just as DeSantis concluded his 99-county tour of the Hawkeye State on Saturday. This fulfills a campaign promise and confirms that DeSantis pins much of his White House hopes on winning Iowa. The Iowa caucuses are now less than a month and a half away. They're the first primary election in the nation. The shakeups inside Governor DeSantis' campaign continue. More people at the main super PAC supporting his presidential bid have left the organization. Reuters reports that the CEO and communications director of the Never Back Down Super PAC have parted ways with the group. CEO Kristen Davison was on the job for less than two weeks after replacing the former CEO in late November. A spokesperson for the group says longtime DeSantis ally Scott Wagner will now take over the chief executive role. DeSantis allies recently formed a new super PAC called Fight Right. It's focusing on attacks against candidate Nikki Haley, who has overtaken DeSantis in some key states. And as Trump's lead in the polls keeps growing, DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley are neck and neck. That's according to a recent poll by News Nation. It found that 11 percent would vote for DeSantis and 10 percent for Haley in the GOP primaries. Trump, meanwhile, took in 60 percent, according to the poll. All other Republican candidates got less than 10 percent. And just in, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is no longer running for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. He criticized the debate requirements set by the RNC, saying they take away the power of democracy from the citizens of Iowa and New Hampshire. Coming up, a former U.S. ambassador was arrested in Miami. An investigation reportedly found links to Cuba's communist government. And Purdue Pharma's Oxycontin settlement reaches the Supreme Court. The Sackler family would pay up to $6 billion and give up ownership of the company. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today.
U.S. service members are suffering from heart conditions following the COVID vaccine, but exactly how many are impacted is proving hard to pin down. The Pentagon just lowered the number of post-vaccination heart inflammation cases. The new report indicates 80 to 90 cases of myocarditis, but in a report released in the fall, the military said that there had been 120 cases. Myocarditis is the inflammation of the heart. The condition was identified as an adverse side effect shortly after the vaccines were rolled out. COVID vaccines were mandated for military service members in 2021, despite data at the time that showed their effect was waning. Congress rescinded the mandate this year. President Biden signed the legislation. The president initially supported and imposed the vaccine mandates. And Democratic Congressman Adam Smith has responded to vandalism at his home regarding the Israel-Hamas war. Smith's Bellevue, Washington residence was vandalized Thursday night. In these images provided by Smith, you can see a gar garage door spray painted with the words baby killer, ceasefire and free Gaza. Smith called the vandalism troubling, problematic, and harmful to our political system. Last month, Congressman Smith called for the elimination of the Hamas terrorist organization, but said Israel and the U.S. can do more to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. He said he recently met with activists to discuss Israel and Hamas, and that he is open to further discussion. A Jewish falafel shop in Philadelphia, the latest target of pro-Palestine protesters. A crowd gathered outside of Goldie Falafel Shop in Center, Center City Sunday night. Scores of demonstrators shouted, Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. An apparent reference to Palestinian casualties in Gaza. Goldie is part of the Cook and Solo restaurants. The co-owner of the hospitality group was born in Israel. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro condemned the demonstrations on X. He called the gathering a blatant act of anti-Semitism, not a peaceful protest. The governor wrote, quote, a restaurant was targeted and mobbed because its owner is Jewish and Israeli. This is hate and bigotry is reminiscent of a dark time in history. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he's ready to go to the Supreme Court over a border security measure. Abbott says he intends to seek a ruling by the entire Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in response to the Federal Appeals Court order on Friday. That order asked the state of Texas to remove its border buoys from the Rio Grande. On Sunday, Abbott blamed what he called a majority of Democrats on the panel who made the decision. A former diplomat who once served as a U.S. ambassador to Bolivia has been arrested. Manuel Rocha's arrest reportedly follows accusations of serving as an agent of Cuba's government. Rocha was arrested on Friday in Miami following a long-running FBI investigation. The Associated Press reports that he's due to appear in court later today, where more details about the case will likely be made public. And according to unnamed sources, the Justice Department accused Rocha of working to promote the Cuban government's interests. The Justice Department declined to comment on the case. Rocha's diplomatic career spanned 25 years under both Democratic and Republican administrations, much of it in Latin America during the Cold War. He once held a diplomatic post in Cuba. Colombian-born Rocha was raised in New York City. He joined the Foreign Service in 1981 and served as the top U.S. diplomat in Argentina between 1997 and 2000. 
A lackluster response from U.S. officials after pro-democracy protesters were attacked in California. Pro-CCP protesters are accused of carrying out the attacks. We speak with Anders Kaur from the Journal of Political Risk about the incidents and the less than vigorous response from authorities. Andrews Kaur, good to have you back. The House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, said at least 15 pro-democracy protesters were harmed by pro-CCP protesters at the APEC summit, with 12 actually ending up in the hospital. What happened here? There's a lot of uh, video evidence of uh, pro-CCP, pro-Xi Jinping protesters uh, beating up, essentially, um, pro-democracy protesters. And uh, some of that happened with uh, metal rods, allegedly. They were hiding the uh, beatings behind huge Chinese flags that they were carrying. Uh, it's a very concerning, very concerning situation, especially since we just don't see the kind of announcements from politicians or enforcement actions uh, by the uh, San Francisco Police Department, FBI, Department of Justice, that one would expect after seeing, seeing such kinds of uh, anti-Asian violence. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite concerning. Yeah, I want to come back to that response. But first, what do we know about the pro-CCP protesters who attacked these people? Allegedly, uh, reportedly, there are, um, you know, these protesters were paid uh, in terms via travel expenses uh, f to travel to San Francisco from as far away as uh, L.A. and New York. Um, they were, you know, strangely, they weren't wearing, many of them weren't wearing masks. They had, some of them had these red bandanas on that looked like, made them look like they were affiliated with gangs or thugs. Um, you know, we... We don't know enough because the FBI hasn't taken action. All right. And coming back to the response of uh, leaders, what explains the lackluster response, as you've been, as you mentioned? There's some speculation. Uh, for example, there's a group called Human Rights in China that pr uh, published a lot of the uh, evidence, the video evidence. There's some speculation that, uh, you know, the, the Gavin Newsom, who is running for president, he's current uh, governor of California, uh, is trying to be soft on China. He was he definitely was soft on China when he visited China recently. Um, he there's also concern that you know uh, President uh, President uh, Biden is trying to go soft on China because he's got his plate full elsewhere in Israel and Ukraine, so he doesn't want another issue. Uh, coming so quickly after all of those things. Um, but, you know, you've got to enforce the law in the United States. That's a, that's a bare minimum uh, as a government yeah. is protect your people. Yeah, and in your article about these incidents, uh, you mentioned China's united front. What is this and why is it relevant here? Uh, the United Front Work Department, UFWD, uh, has for a long time been promoting um, relations between the Chinese Communist Party and outside non-party actors, whether that's within China or outside China. Outside China, uh, they use uh, China-affiliated CCP, 
consulate-affiliated groups. Um, reportedly, there are, according to Newsweek, there are 600 such groups in the United States. Um, some groups of concern, I would argue, are uh, the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, for example. They reportedly, some of these counter-protesters were organized um, allegedly through this uh, this student group, um, and the student group has reportedly has links to the Chinese consulates, and this is not just in the United States, but elsewhere in the world. All right, Andrews Core, principal at Core Analytics. Thank you again. Thank you. A nationwide settlement with OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma reaches the Supreme Court. The proposal would shield members of the Sackler family from civil lawsuits over the opioid crisis. The Sacklers would pay up to $6 billion and give up ownership of Purdue. The company would emerge from bankruptcy as a different entity. Profits would go toward treatment for opioid addiction and prevention. However, the Biden administration objected to the proposed agreement. The justices put the settlement on hold over the summer. The issue is whether the legal shield that bankruptcy provides can be extended to individuals who have not declared bankruptcy. The High Court is hearing arguments starting today. The decision is expected early this summer. The chair of Florida's Republican Party says he will not resign amid a rape allegation. Christian Ziegler says that he and his wife are being targeted because of their political views. DeSantis said last week that Ziegler is innocent until proven guilty. But the Florida governor added that he should resign to avoid becoming a distraction to their party. Ziegler maintains his innocence and insists he won't step down. No charges have been filed against him. Sarasota police investigation remains open. His accuser told police in October that Ziegler forced his way into her apartment and raped her. According to a police affidavit, Ziegler told detectives their relations were consensual. An Indiana all-girls Catholic college says it's accepting transgender women. The school will now admit male applicants who identify as female. St. Mary's College says the move is part of its commitment to diversity and inclusion. The bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese criticized the new policy. He called the new policy at odds with Catholic teaching. The bishop added that he wasn't consulted or informed about the plan. The college was founded by the Sisters of Notre Dame, but the conservative order of Catholic nuns seems to have grown more liberal recently. In September, the campus held a pride event. One graduate called the new policy absolute pandering. Another said she was proud of St. Mary's College for accepting what she called all women. About 60 credit unions in the U.S. have experienced outages due to a ransomware attack. The incident is just the latest example of how ransomware attacks have caused havoc for U.S. critical infrastructure in recent years. Hospitals, fuel pipelines, and schools have also been disrupted by the file-locking cyber attacks, prompting the Biden administration to treat ransomware as a national security crisis. Coming up, a key Russian military leader is dead. Authorities confirmed the Army Corps leader died on the battlefield. We'll bring you the details. And the Netherlands accused of complicity in war crimes. The Dutch state today defending itself before a court. Find out what the allegations are all about when we return.
And now we're heading to France, where police have arrested a man in connection with the fatal stabbing of a German tourist in Paris on Saturday. According to prosecutors, the man previously recorded a video pledging allegiance to ISIS. French President Emmanuel Macron called the incident a terrorist attack. NTD's Cost Temenes has more. The man, a French national, was quickly arrested after police subdued him with a taser stun gun. This according to French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin, who spoke at a press conference on Saturday. Two others, one British and one French national, sustained non-life-threatening injuries after being attacked with a hammer by the same man. The attack occurred at Bir Hakeim, near the Eiffel Tower. Darmanin said the suspect told police he carried out the attack due to being upset about the situation in Gaza, as well as Muslims dying in Afghanistan and Palestine. According to French police, the man shouted Alu Akbar during the attack. The man was previously arrested in 2016 for planning another attack. He had since been on the French security services watch list. He was also known to have serious psychiatric disorders and was required to get treatment since his release from prison in 2020. According to French officials, three other people affiliated with the suspect were also taken into custody on Sunday. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz wrote on X that he was shocked by the attack, reaffirming his position to resolutely stand up to hatred and terror. In a meeting on Sunday, French Prime Minister Elisabeth Borne met with cabinet members to reassess the country's current security arrangements. France has been on high alert since raising its security threshold in October, when a Chechen origin man with a knife killed a teacher in a school in northern France. Cost MNS, NTD News. And now more reactions to the Saturday attack in France and some short headlines from other European countries. Human rights groups accuse the Netherlands of complicity in war crimes for exporting F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel. The district court in The Hague appear, heard the case today. A decision is expected in two weeks. Israel denies having carried out war crimes, saying its forces abide by international law while fighting terrorists who operate in densely populated areas. A key Russian military leader has died in Ukraine. Major General Vladimir Zavadsky was a deputy commander of Russia's 14th Army Corps. Russia says he died at a combat post in the war zone without giving further details. Zavadsky was the seventh major general whose death had been confirmed by Russia and the 12th senior official overall to be reported dead since the start of the war. Brazil's President Lula da Silva is in Germany today. It's the first German-Brazilian government con consultation in eight years. Left-leaning Lula has been seeking to strengthen ties with various nations since he took office. However, many of those nations face criticism over human rights concerns. Just a month after Lula took office, Iranian warships docked at a port in Rio de Janeiro, despite pressure from the United States. Lula is also sympathetic to China and Venezuela, unlike his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. He's actively strengthening ties with the communist regime. An apparent change in policy. Italy's Prime Minister now advocating for more nations to join the European Union. Georgia Maloney campaigned on putting Italy first, often criticizing the EU. However, she's recently become much softer on her policies, even completely changing course in some cases. She now says Europe won't be truly united until Western Balkan nations applying for membership 
joined the European Union. She made the remarks while in Serbia on Sunday. We have been and will continue to be, and I want to say this very clearly, among the main supporters of the enlargement process as it is known in Europe. I myself define it as the reunification of Europe. More than a ton of cocaine wrapped in Disney-themed packaging. Colombian officials seized the illegal drugs from the sea. A smuggling crew threw the contraband in the water once they noticed that the Navy was monitoring them. The Coast Guard then found the drugs off the coast. They also found the abandoned boat from the smugglers who managed to escape after beaching the vessel. The 44 packages of drugs are worth over $36 million. Despite ongoing efforts to combat drug trafficking, Colombia remains a major global producer of cocaine. And staying in South America, Argentina says it won't join the intergovernmental organization known as BRICS, made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. That's despite Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping sending a personal letter to Javier Malay, Argentina's president-elect. Earlier, we spoke with Epic Times Brazil editor-in-chief Marcos Schottges for his insights. Marcos Schottges. Millet's announcement of Argentina not joining BRICS seems pivotal. Could you explain to our audience, first of all, the significance of BRICS and also how Argentina's refusal impacts the bloc? Sure. So uh, thank you for having me. Um, the BRICS used to be, um, the term was actually coined by Goldman Sachs. It's an acronym uh, that means Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Um, it started without, without South Africa, which joined later on. It was originally meant to be an economic bloc. It was a very loose coalition of countries. Then starting from around uh, the Dilma Rousseff administration in Brazil, um, maybe around 2012, the, the bloc started getting more geopolitical and political ties amidst the leaders started to increase. Now, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, Russia and China increasingly saw the BRICS as an, as an alternative uh, to have free trade and legitimacy internationally. Now, uh, earlier mm. this year, they were expanding. Argentina is only one of six countries that was invited to join. So Argentina's not joining is pivotal in the sense that this major South American country is telling Russia, it's telling China um, that it's not going to stand for an alternative. So, Marcus, this year, BRICS announced an expansion, as you alluded to. Part of that was inviting Argentina to join, but it also included inviting various countries with anti-American stances to join the bloc. What kind of threat does that pose to the U.S. and other nations in, free in the free world? Okay, so, um, as I was alluding to, it's a major threat in the sense that the BRICS has increasingly been um, China's and Russia's way to find legitimacy and access to, to markets and access to a broader international economy and community. The big concerns were Iran and Venezuela joining. Venezuela did not join, but Iran was invited and has already said that it will accept. So the concerns there are quite big because you got Russia, China and Iran um, in a single block, they're also together in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, they are able to not only have free trade and legitimacy, but they're also able to project power in a broader sense. The increased concerns are that the other countries joining, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Ethiopia, the United Arab, the United Arab Emirates, sorry, um, are all, all 
oil-rich countries. So this yeah. is also a concern energetic-wise in, in the energy sense, yeah. And, and now that Argentina has declined to join, what sort of blow does that deal to the bloc and also to, as we know, the Chinese Communist Party and their ambitions to subdue the U.S. worldwide? So um, it does deal a blow to an extent. It's not that major of a blow, but it's very symbolic in the sense that it curbs um, a growing trend of influence and it does signal uh, that this administration in Latin America um, is willing to do some sort of opposition. The signs were pretty mixed up until now, but this is a clearer sign uh, of the same rhetoric Millet had during the campaign opposing the Chinese Communist Party. And Argentina agreed to join China's Belt and Road Initiative back in 2022. Now that Malay is stepping in to power, do you expect to see him pulling out of that initiative? Yeah, I expect, I expect to see him pulling out. Argentina has essentially replaced Brazil as China's sweetheart in Latin America. Um, it's very deeply embedded with China. It has lots of contracts, um, loan contracts, with what they call cross-cancellation clauses, um, which basically means that China can use different contracts to leverage um, and exert influence over Argentina. Now, I do expect to see him pulling out uh, as a first step to try to curb China's uh, very hard to read influence in Argentina. So what significant um, milestones should be watching out for in the coming weeks and months in this regard? Um, I mean, I suspect, first of all, Millet is going to focus mostly on economy before going straight into international matters. His, the main focus of the administration on the early weeks should try to get quick uh, wins that can curb inflation quickly, that can generate uh, an economy able to absorb uh, state employees, and then eventually the state uh, is bound to be less swollen. So during the first year of his presidency, I expect him to focus more, more on trying to get inflation under control. It's now over 140% year on year. Um, just numbers you wouldn't even imagine in the U.S. Um, and then later on, probably he'll try to focus on international relations. But we're likely to see a mild rhetoric, especially early in the administration in my analysis. Thank you so much. Marcos Schatkes, editor-in-chief of the Epic Times Brazil. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Four holidays in one parade. Find out more about what's billed as a one-of-a-kind event in Philadelphia. A 12th-century leaning tower in Italy is now at risk of collapsing, but city officials are implementing a plan. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Philadelphia hosted a parade over the weekend that's billed as a one-of-a-kind in the whole country. The parade celebrates four different holidays at once, so it has something for everyone. Let's take a look. This weekend marked the third annual Philly Holiday Parade. It's not just another Christmas parade. Organizers say it's the only parade in America to celebrate Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and Chinese Lunar New Year. There's another unique aspect to the parade. It's held at night. Well, this is the only evening parade we join each year, so it's kind of unique. The other parades all during the day, and in the evening, it feels uh, maybe more, somehow more, uh, the mood is more celebratory. 
What motivates participants to come from all over? And what do they want to share with the audience? A member of the Tian Guo Marching Band explains. So our music, our, our original music, uh, and we, we feel it's very special. It has very special meanings behind the songs. So we want to bring the guests, share the goodness, and hopefully the energy, positive energy that uh, people can hopefully feel from our music and share it with everyone. Of course, everyone has their favorite performers. I, that's hard to say. There was a couple, there was one group that did like a singing performance um, for Kwanzaa that was really cool that I thought her voice was really beautiful. I love seeing all like the how different cultures celebrate the holidays in their own ways. And it's really nice to see all the dancing and the kids involved. Parade goers had wishes for the holiday season and the upcoming new year. Peace, um, just for happiness and for everyone to just learn to get along. The parade had a special meaning for this woman from Iran. And it's really interesting for me uh, coming in the uh, country like United States that all the nations are free to express themselves, even people, their ideas, even as you see that uh, people who there is no matter their gender, people respect each other, people um, accept each other what they are, the, the way that they, uh, they are. The Philly Holiday Parade offers people a unique opportunity to experience different cultures and holidays in one place. While their celebrations may differ, each holiday's hopes and wishes are universally positive. And Brits might have to tweak their Christmas lunch recipes this year because of a poor vegetable harvest. Repeated storms mean that crops have turned to mud. And TD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the salvaging efforts. In these muddy British fields, potatoes are often already rotten. Even the heavy tractors of this farm are struggling to separate vegetables from the mud. Successive storms in October are to blame. Now farmer James Lacey says he has more than $250,000 worth of potatoes he can't harvest. We're not going to get this crop off the field, basically. We're probably going to lose 5-10% of our crop because it's underwater, rotting, and then we're having problems with crops in store because they don't like this kind of weather and they're not storing very well. So it's just going to have a knock-on effect on availability. The rotten potatoes are only good for animal feed. And it's not just potatoes. Other root vegetables like carrots and parsnips are affected too. The consequences are already clear on supermarket shelves and restaurants. People are becoming concerned about their Christmas lunch. Broccoli is worth its weight in gold because it's most impossible to get. There's something every week that is in short supply. Farmers expect it'll take weeks for their crops to dry. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Thousands of runners put on Father Christmas costumes to take part in the UK's biggest festive 5K fun run on Sunday. The Liverpool Santa Dash holds the distinction of being the largest and most enduring Santa run in the country. In 2005, it earned a Guinness World Record for the largest Santa gathering. Participants dressed in vibrant red and blue Santa outfits then embarked on a 5K run through the city centre, raising funds for the local Adler Hay Children's Hospital. An Italian city is on high alert for a leaning tower to collapse. The Garicenda Tower is a symbol of Bologna, Italy, but now city leaders say it doesn't have much longer. 
It's not the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa, but it's just as special. The tower was built in the 12th century and is leaning at an angle of four degrees. A new report found that it could collapse soon. The area around the tower has been blocked off since October. Inspectors have since found that the tower's base has deteriorated. As a result, the city council announced they will be building a protective barrier around the area, forming a possible collapse zone. It will also help prevent the surrounding building from buildings from being damaged. Residents say it's hard to imagine the city without the tower. This is a shame because the towers were a symbol of wealth and importance for the families who lived there. There are only two left, and if this one collapses too, it will be one tower less. Only one of the two would remain. The tower is a symbol of Bologna, and if it were to fall, it would be a real shame because we would lose one of the city's most important monuments. The two towers are a bit of a landmark for all of us. If you can't find someone because they're on a different street, you can say, look up, look for the two towers, and I'll meet you there. Even though everyone says they're going to fall, I think that because they've been standing for over 600 years, they're not going to fall in the next two months. In my opinion, they will stay up for at least another 70 years, maybe even 100. A spokesperson also says that while preparations for a possible collapse are underway, there is no imminent danger. And in case you were wondering, the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa, also in Italy, leans slightly more than this tower at an angle of 5 degrees. And if you love adventure, this may be the job for you working at the world's most remote post office. You live on a tiny island in Antarctica surrounded by penguins. The job involves counting penguins, cleaning up their poop, and running a post office and museum. But it's not all fun and games. Living conditions are rough with no running water or showers for up to two weeks. There's also no internet or cell service, and you have to dispose of human and penguin waste. Despite the challenges, the job is highly popular, and candidates must be physically and mentally strong. Rudolph the reindeer has arrived right on time for the New Jersey Christmas season. Well, not the Rudolph, but perhaps a cousin. The deer broke into Cedar Grove Elementary School in late November. The deer crashed through a window and then gal galloped through the halls. Police nicknamed the intruder after Santa's lead reindeer. Officers said they attempted to make an arrest. Video footage captured police in pursuit as the animal jumped onto desks in nearby classrooms. Officers were ultimately able to lead the deer to one of the school's exit doors. The Toms River Police Department posted the video on Instagram. The post included a disclaimer that read, no reindeer were injured during filming. Man, I wonder what's going on in the North Pole. I know, right? So many deer getting around. Oh my gosh. All right, if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The White House is warning lawmakers it needs more money to support Ukraine. It says funds are running out and will soon be dry. We bring you the Biden administration's appeal to Congress. Purdue Pharma's OxyContin settlement reaches the Supreme Court. The Sackler family would pay up to $6 billion and give up ownership of the company. The House is set to vote on a bill to counter pending federal regulations on gas-powered vehicles and prevent future electric vehicle mandates. 
The Biden administration has committed to shutting down all coal plants. What's the timeline? What would it look like? And why it may benefit China? One of Hong Kong's leading pro-democracy activists breaking the silence after more than two years. Where she is and what she has to say about her time in jail. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We open with more updates on the war between Israel and Hamas. The Israeli military is expanding its operations into southern Gaza. The military told Gaza residents in specific neighborhoods to evacuate in the south to evacuate. Israel warned that the main humanitarian corridor that goes through Gaza is now a battlefield and asked people not to use it any longer. As fighting expands in the Gaza Strip, it's getting harder for, for aid delivery to reach some areas. The United Nations says more than 80% of Gaza's population is displaced. The head of Israel's domestic security agency says his organization is prepared to destroy Hamas in every place including in other Middle Eastern countries. And inside Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial has resumed. His lengthy trial, which began in 2020, was paused after the Hamas attack. Netanyahu denies any wrongdoing. Strong words from Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. He said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would eventually be tried as a war criminal over Israel's military action in Gaza. The Turkish president also condemned Western countries for supporting Israel. At a speech in Istanbul today, Erdogan said Western support was giving, quote, unconditional support to kill babies, unquote. Erdogan added that Western support made the countries complicit in the crimes. Turkey supports a two-state solution to the decades-old conflict in the region. Erdogan drew a comparison between Netanyahu and former Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic, who was tried for genocide and war crimes. Unlike most of its Western allies in some Gulf states, NATO member Turkey does not view Hamas as a terrorist group. The country also hosts some of the group's members. And the White House says it needs more money to support Ukraine. This, as senators are setting conditions for aid to Israel, they want Israel to limit civilian casualties in Gaza. The White House sent a letter to congressional leaders warning the administration will run out of money to support Ukraine. That's if Congress doesn't allocate new funding by the end of the year. The letter states that there's no magical pot of funding available and that the administration is out of money and nearly out of time. Meanwhile, in the Senate, liberal lawmakers are setting conditions for Israel in exchange for aid. Senator Bernie Sanders and others say Israel must limit civilian deaths in Gaza. They want Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to ensure he'll aim to do that. The senators warned President Biden's national security team that aid to Israel must be met with such assurances. Sanders said the time for asking nicely is over, adding that financial aid is the leverage the U.S. holds against Israel. Lawmakers are also working on a bill to address border security. Republican Senator James Lankford told ABC that lawmakers are making progress with that. 
we are making progress on this. This is exceptionally important. When uh, the administration actually put out their national security package, they asked for funding for Israel, for Ukraine, for Taiwan, and for the border. And then literally two days later, after they put that proposal out in their request, they also put out a piece uh, saying that the border funding element would be, quote, unquote, this was their term, a tourniquet. The senator went on to say that what's really needed is a policy change, not just more funding. Lankford says the U.S. has to handle the process of all individual immigrants properly and not just mass release thousands of people. House Speaker Mike Johnson gave an update on a planned impeachment inquiry into President Biden over the weekend. Johnson says he thinks the House has enough votes to formally launch an inquiry without support from any Democrats. Johnson called the move a, necess a necessary step. The House Speaker told Fox News that the White House has been stonewalling committees investigating the Biden family. We have checks written to Joe Biden that the Oversight Committee has found in the banking records, $40,000 from China, $200,000 from a now bankrupt healthcare company that his brother James Biden apparently swindled. But the evidence is so clear you cannot look away. Johnson is accusing the Biden administration of withholding thousands of pages of evidence and preventing at least two or three DOJ witnesses from testifying. He says a formal floor vote on the inquiry will allow committees to move forward. Republicans have signaled that a formal impeachment inquiry into Biden could be launched as soon as this week. President Biden's brother James Biden is set to appear before the GOP-led panel on Wednesday. Hunter Biden is scheduled for a closed-door deposition next week. There's one less person running for president of the United States. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announced today he has suspended his campaign. Bergam launched his campaign for the Republican nomination in June. He didn't meet the qualifications for last month's third debate and was also unlikely to qualify for this week's fourth debate in Alabama. In a statement, Bergam says part of the reason why he ran was to, quote, reestablish trust in America's leadership and our institutions of democracy, unquote. Bergam also told a took a swipe at the Republican National Committee, saying their debate requirements are, quote, nationalizing the primary process. He went on to say none of the debate criteria, which include polling, averages, and number of donors, are qualifications for doing the job as president. Tensions in Iowa are building. Former President Trump campaigning in the Hawkeye State over the weekend. Trump commented on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign, saying the governor's bid might soon be over. This as DeSantis' poll numbers keep going down and Trump's keep rising. And we hit him very hard, and he's, uh, he's been falling out of the air like a very seriously wounded bird, right, to the ground. And it's a very pleasant thing to see. Now, it looks like he's gonzo, but we never want to say that we got to get this thing finished. The comments come just as DeSantis concluded his 99-county tour of the Hawkeye State on Saturday. This fulfills a campaign promise and confirms that DeSantis pins much of his White House hopes on winning Iowa. The Iowa caucuses are now less than a month and a half away. They're the first primary election in the nation. The shakeups inside Governor DeSantis's campaign continue. More key people at the main super PAC supporting his presidential bid have left the organization. Reuters reports that the CEO and communications director of the Never Back Down super PAC have parted ways with the group. 
CEO Kristen Davison was on the job for less than two weeks after replacing the former CEO in late November. A spokesperson for the group says longtime DeSantis ally Scott Wagner will now take over the chief executive role. DeSantis allies recently formed a new super PAC called Fight Right. It's focusing on attacks against candidate Nikki Haley, who has overtaken DeSantis in some key states. And as Trump, Trump's lead in the polls keeps growing, DeSantis and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley are neck and neck. That's according to a recent poll by News Nation. It found that 11% would vote for DeSantis and 10% for Haley in the GOP primaries. Trump, meanwhile, took in 60%, according to the poll. All other Republican candidates got less than 10%. The chair of Florida's Republican Party says he will not resign amid a rape allegation. Christian Ziegler says that he and his wife are being targeted because of their political views. Santa said last week that Ziegler is innocent until proven guilty, but the Florida governor added that he should resign to avoid becoming a distraction to their party. Ziegler maintains his innocence and insists he won't step down. No charges have been filed against him. Sarasota police investigation remains open. His accuser told police in October that Ziegler, Ziegler forced his way into her apartment and raped her. According to a police affidavit, Ziegler told detectives their relations were consensual. And a major announcement on climate action. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry said over the weekend, the U.S. has signed a new climate pact to shut down all coal plants, completely phasing them out by 2030. Earlier, we spoke with energy writer and policy analyst David Blackman for his take on this latest development. David Blackman, first off, what's the scope of the shutdowns that we're looking at here? You know, how much of the U.S.'s energy comes from coal? Uh, you know, it's a much smaller percentage than it was just 10 years ago. Uh, it's something around 20% of our electricity today is generated by coal-fired power plants. Over the last decade, we've retired hundreds of coal-burning power plants and substituted natural gas plants for them that produce less than half the emissions. And so, you know, in that, in doing that, we've actually reduced our emissions profile in the United States to levels not seen since the early 1990s. So, you know, um, right now in the United States, the coal still generates a substantial amount of electricity, but it's, it's vastly reduced from what it used to be. And what would be the immediate and long-term impacts, do you think, of shutting down all of the U.S.'s coal plants? Well, I mean, I, if we tried to do that, it would be a, a real problem. We're already running dangerously short of baseload power generation uh, in various regions of the country, including Texas, by the way, where I live. We've shut down about two-thirds of our coal plants in Texas over the last decade. Uh, and we have constant warnings now from our grid manager about the lack of available baseload power generation that we need to keep the lights on and avoid blackouts here in Texas. So it's uh, ERCOT, our grid manager, uh, is anticipating some real problems over this coming winter. And, and a big piece of it is the Biden administration is moving at the same time to also shut down natural gas power plants and prevent people from being able to build new natural gas power. And that's, that's a real problem for everyone. Yeah, and considering what you've just mentioned about the, the effects that this could have, and also the goal, I think, in this pact for the U.S. is 2030. So the number of years that we have to do it in. 
that <laughs> what uh, what kind of impacts will this also have on the economy and on unemployment in regions that would be affected by the shutdowns? Well, I mean, all we have to do to know that is to look at Germany. Uh, what's happening in Germany, the deindustrialization of Germany, because Germany uh, has shut down so many of its baseload power plants that it now doesn't have adequate electricity to sustain its in, its industries. Uh, steel plants and, and other heavy industries are moving to other countries now because energy has become so scarce and it's become too expensive for them to make a profit. And we're following the same plan here in the United States and it's, it's a real economic disaster for the country if we continue to pursue this. You can't do this by 2030. You can't do it by 2040. You can't do it by 2050 if you want to sustain economic growth in your country and have a high level of energy security. Hmm. Now, China is heavily reliant on coal, making up nearly 60% of the nation's energy. The Biden administration has worked very hard with China to try to cooperate over climate goals. Um, how significant is the U.S.'s shutdown of climate uh, of coal plants while China continues to accelerate their um, their construction of coal plants? Right. I mean, all we're doing uh, by doing that, what we're accomplishing is just transferring the emissions to another country. Okay. We we all have one atmosphere on this earth. And it doesn't matter where the emissions come from, they, you know, it, it affects the, the whole atmosphere. And so this is a shell game that's being played. China is building up its own heavy industries. Those are being transferred along with the emissions, by the way, to China. And, and the entire enterprise is going to have the end result, and it's inevitable. This is not a guess, it's not speculation. The inevitable result of this is going to be the United States becoming dependent on China for its own energy security, and energy security is national security. And so it's, it's a dangerous plan. David Blackman, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, renewable energy stocks are facing pressure despite growing interest in the sector. Why is this happening? We talked to NTD Business host, Don Ma. And air traffic controllers at greater risk of making mistakes. That's according to a New York Times survey. What are the causes? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss renewable energy investments. It seems like many of these stocks have fallen out of a favor for investors. Don, why is this happening? Well, first of all, we have to remember that a high interest rate environment uh, is not very beneficial for this sector because renewable energy uh, projects usually requires significant upfront investment. Um, so, you know, a lot of the times these projects rely on debt and when high borrowing costs uh, that we're seeing right now are in place, you know, it's not very economically uh, viable. Um, so, you know, you're seeing investors uh, like taking note of this as well. It's becoming less uh, attractive 
Um, so these challenges, you know, make it difficult for you to maximize your portfolio returns. Uh, I mean, on the consumer side as well, because it takes a, a lot of uh, initial investment to uh, transition to, for example, solar panels on your house. Uh, it takes a lot of money, uh, sometimes thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And you know, consumers, if they want to take on debt to do this, you know, they, they may hesitate because of how high interest rates are. So that potentially is also uh, pr proving to be an obstacle for the clean energy transition. So those are just some uh, big overview points. And so how have renewable energy stocks performed this year? Well, an investment fund that uh, tracks the performance of sectors from renewable en uh, electricity to semiconductors to solar panels, uh, this fund has slumped 27% this year. So that's pretty significant. It's on pace for its third uh, straight annual loss, in fact. And some specific numbers on particular, uh, not particularly notable uh, stocks. Um, plug power shares slumped 63% uh, this year. Solar Edge Technologies declined 71%. Inface Energy shares plunged 60%. Uh, so, you know, it seems like the Biden administration's push uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act, which, by the way, puts billions and billions of dollars into the renewable energy sector, perhaps it may not have uh, turned out as well as they may have hoped. Uh, some investors are also saying that uh, a slow global transition to uh, renewable energy could also be a limiting factor to returns and uh, these companies' profitability. What else is going on in the business world right now, Don? Yeah, uh, music streaming giant Spotify said on Monday that it's going to lay off around 1,500 employees. That's about 17% of its headcount. The, lay the layoff aims to bring down costs for the company. It's actually already the third round of layoffs this year. And in a letter to employees, Spotify CEO Daniel Eek said that the company hired too much in 2020 and 2021 because of the lower cost of capital. But now Spotify says that economic growth has slowed down dramatically and capital has actually become more expensive. So it's trying to readjust at this point. And as well, the House is set to vote on legislation that aims to counter pending federal regulations on gas-powered vehicles and as well prevent future electric vehicle mandates. It's called the Choice in Automobile Retail Sales or CARS Act. This bill is scheduled for consideration by the House Rules Committee and a floor vote with a potential Senate consideration. Supporters say that the Biden administration's EV mandate is, quote, radical, and supporters also emphasize the importance of affordability, innovation, and freedom of choice in the auto industry. All right, great. Thank you very much, Don. Thank you. And a nationwide settlement with OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma reaches the Supreme Court. The proposal would shield members of the Sackler family from civil lawsuits over the opioid crisis. The Sacklers would pay up to $6 billion and give, ownership of, give up ownership of Purdue. The company would emerge from bankruptcy as a different entity. Profits would go toward treatment for opioid addiction and prevention. However, the Biden administration objected to the proposed agreement. The justices put the settlement on hold over the summer. The issue is whether the legal shield that bankruptcy provides can be extended to individuals who have not declared bankruptcy. 
The High Court is hearing arguments starting today. A decision is expected early this summer. A sizable marijuana operation inside a Tennessee church. Authorities in Stewart County say they've uncovered the largest marijuana growing operation in the country's history. It followed a three-week investigation, which included gathering information from neighbors and traffic stops. They found about 2,000 marijuana plants, elaborate growing and water systems on, on timers, and a large amount of possible toxic chemicals. The sheriff's office described it as a very sophisticated growing environment. One person was taken into custody. Others are wanted for questioning. Authorities are in the process of cleaning the site up. U.S. service members are suffering from heart conditions following the COVID vaccine, but exactly how many are impacted is proving hard to pin down. The Pentagon just lowered the number of post-vaccination heart inflammation cases. The new report indicates 80 to 90 cases of myocarditis, but in a report released in the fall, the military said that there had been 120 cases. Myocarditis is the inflammation of the heart. The condition was identified as an adverse side effect shortly after the vaccines were rolled out. COVID vaccines were mandated for military service members in 2021, despite data at the time that showed that their effect was waning. Congress rescinded the mandate this year. President Biden signed that legislation. The president initially supported and imposed the vaccine mandates. A New York Times investigation shows air traffic controllers are by and large overworked demoralized and at greater risk of making mistakes. The Times interviewed more than 70 current and former air traffic controllers, pilots and federal officials. And reporters reviewed thousands of pages of federal safety reports and internal Federal Aviation Administration records. The paper says air traffic controllers and others submitted hundreds of complaints over the past two years to an FAA hotline. The complaints described issues including staffing shortages, mental health problems, and unpleasant working conditions. The Times uncovered at least seven reports of controllers sleeping when they were on duty and five complaints about employees working while under the influence of drugs or alcohol. The Times reported last August that while the U.S. airspace is remarkably safe, potentially dangerous close calls have happened on average several times a week this year. And the FAA responded to the Times story. A spokesperson said the story does not reflect the high level of safety of the country's airspace. Quote, flying has never been safer, due in large part to our air traffic controllers. The agency says it encourages air traffic controllers to report safety concerns and incidents without fear of retaliation. About 60 credit unions in the U.S. have experienced outages due to a ransomware attack. The incident is just the latest example of how ransomware attacks have caused havoc for U.S. critical infrastructure in recent years. Hospitals, fuel pipelines, and schools have also been disrupted by the file-locking cyber attacks, prompting the Biden administration to treat ransomware as a national security crisis. Coming up, Taiwan's presidential election is a little more than a month away. Hear what the top American diplomat in Taiwan has to say about the election. And an unprecedented fine against the Chinese arm of an auditing company. Find out what the company is accused of doing in China and Hong Kong. We'll have the details soon when we return. An 
now we have some short headlines from countries in Asia and Oceania. One of Hong Kong's most prominent pro-democracy activists has now relocated to Canada. 27-year-old Agnes Chow says she's not planning to return to Hong Kong. Chow was a core member of a now disbanded group of younger activists who helped drive Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. She was sentenced to 10 months in jail in November 2020 after the Chinese regime imposed the national security law in Hong Kong. She was released in June 2021 and hasn't been heard from since then. Chow told Japanese TV in a video call that she struggled with mental health issues during her time in jail. I have to go back to Hong Kong and appear before the authorities in December this year, but I have decided not to return to Hong Kong. I can't go back to Hong Kong. I have decided that I will probably never go back. Kong, a court adjourned a hearing into a liquidation petition filed against China Evergrande Group. This allows the embattled developer more time to finalize a debt restructuring proposal. The Hong Kong High Court today adjourning the hearing to January 29th. Evergrande's lawyers sought an adjournment saying no creditors were actively seeking liquidation. After the adjournment order, Evergrande shares reversed losses from earlier in the day to jump more than 13%. Evergrande is the world's most indebted property developer with more than $300 billion in total liabilities. The Chinese firm defaulted on its offshore debt in late 2021. It's become the poster child of a debt crisis that has since engulfed China's property sector. As Taiwan's presidential election approaches, a top American diplomat is commenting. Sandra Kudrick, Kudkik leads the American Institute in Taiwan, which is the de facto U.S. Embassy on the island. She said in a speech at National Taiwan University today that Taiwan's election must be free from outside interference. Utkirk added that the U.S. is not taking sides and U.S. policy towards the island will remain the same no matter who wins in January. As Taiwan gets closer to its elections, I want to emphasize that the United States has deep confidence in Taiwan's electoral processes and democratic system. We believe it is for the Taiwan voters to decide their next leader, free from outside interference. China disputing each other's claims about the activities of a U.S. warship in the South China Sea. The USS Gabrielle Giffords is a littoral combat ship that can operate close to shorelines. The Chinese regime today said the ship illegally entered waters near an atoll in the South China Sea and violated China's sovereignty. The U.S. Navy responded. They said the Gabrielle Giffords was conducting routine operations in international waters in the South China Sea consistent with international law. The Chinese regime claims virtually all of the South China Sea. This is despite an international tribunal ruling against its claims. In Japan, a search team found five more bodies from the U.S. military aircraft that crashed into the sea last week. This means two other crew members remain unaccounted for. The U.S. Air Force announced today that the search team found the wreckage of the Osprey CV-22 aircraft and the remains of five crew members. Divers are trying to retrieve the bodies. The military hasn't identified the killed crew members. Only one crew member was initially confirmed dead on the day of the crash. The Osprey was on a training mission when it crashed off the coast of western Japan on November 29th. Eight people total were on board. 
The U.S. military said it's com committed to bringing the service members home. Eleven climbers were found dead in Indonesia following the eruption of a volcano in West Sumatra. The victims were among 75 climbers in the area at the time of Sunday's eruption. The local search and rescue team says the majority of the climbers have been found, with many being treated for burns. A dozen climbers remain unaccounted for, but the search was suspended on Monday due to safety concerns after a further small eruption. According to the Volcanology Agency, Indonesia sits on the Pacific's so-called Ring of Fire and has 127 active volcanoes. In the Philippines, at least three people were killed after a powerful earthquake struck late on Saturday. It was magnitude 7.4. The country also experienced several aftershocks. Two people died as a result of falling debris and a collapsed wall. More were injured. Residents were, able to, were allowed to return to their homes on Sunday. But many are still in shelters. Government data show that 100,000 people in evacuation centers in the hardest hit province as of late Sunday. Another earthquake, magnitude 6.8 and less than a mile from the surface, struck the Philippines early this morning. Official says it's not part of the aftershocks. Australia and France agreeing to rebuild relations. The two countries' foreign ministers unveiled a new roadmap today in the capital of Australia. It's a plan to progress defense ties as well as improve foreign aid and climate resilience in the Pacific. Ties between Australia and France frayed over a submarine deal. In 2021, Australia cancelled a multi-billion dollar order for submarines with France. Instead, Australia signed a nuclear submarine deal with the U.S. and the U.K. The move enraged Paris and triggered a diplomatic meltdown. The French foreign minister's visit to Australia today was the first since 2019. A U.S. regulator has fined the China arm of PwC $7 million. It says the auditing firm allowed cheating during training exams in China and Hong Kong. A U.S. agency said the cheating was extensive and the company didn't detect it or try to stop it. The U.S. nonprofit can inspect the books and records of Chinese companies listed in New York thanks to a landmark deal between the two countries in 2022. This is the first fine since that deal. The regulators said that from 2018 to 2020, over a thousand PwC workers shared answers for online tests that were part of a U.S. mandated auditing curriculum. A nuclear testing site in Kazakhstan serves as a reminder of Russia's nuclear arsenal. Scientists from around the world continue to examine the aftermath of more than 400 atomic explosions. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Samopolitanska test site, November 22, 1955. The Soviet Union tested its RDS-37 two-stage hydrogen bomb in what is now modern-day Kazakhstan. It was one of many tests conducted here. This is Lake Chagan, also known as the Atomic Lake. It's the result of a nuclear test carried out on January 15, 1965. One of the major pollutions occurred after the creation of the Atomic Lake as a result of the escalating explosion. All of the products of the nuclear explosion ended up on the surface. The territory of the test site was unmarked and not protected in any way until 2006. As a result, the local population used most of it for livestock grazing. Our region is unique for science and practice because there are several generations of those who were directly exposed. 
those who were exposed and were born from irradiated people, those who were not exposed and were born from irradiated people. Now it's the fourth generation. Probably there is no such large population anywhere else in the world. Hundreds of thousands of Kazakh people were exposed to radiation for 40 years. One resident of a nearby village witnessed a nuclear explosion at the Semipolitinska test site. I saw that the explosion was in the form of a mushroom. There was a big explosion. We saw black smoke rising into the sky. We were told, don't look, we are Kazakhs. He means he would look at the explosion in any case. They said, if you want to look, look through a special glass. Today, scientists say the radiation levels are no longer elevated, but children in the region continue to be born with genetic mutations. There was an increase in cancer diseases in direct proportion to the radiation dose, as well as congenital malformations. And then children began to appear born from irradiated parents. There is no definitive answer in science as to how long this negative impact will last. More than 30 years after the test site closed, negative impacts on human health in the region persist. According to official data, new cancer cases in Kazakhstan increased by 25 to 30 percent in 2021. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up in college football, let the debate begin. The playoff field is finally set, but now without, not without some controversy. NTD's Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss. And the world's most remote post office is hiring. The job is highly sought after despite a host of challenges. Find out why more shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the final college football playoff rankings were released just yesterday, but not without some controversy. Did you agree with the committee's decision to leave out an undefeated Florida State over you know, a pair of, of one-loss teams? No. I mean, what else could they do besides win every game? I'll grant it was going to be a difficult choice no matter what, but this is the first time they left out a team from a power conference outside the playoffs that was undefeated. Now, they said it was because of their star quarterback's injury, but they had, they had kept winning even without him. Now, I get they had to put an SEC team in, Alabama, who just beat Georgia. SEC is always the toughest conference. I think once they did that, they felt they had to put Texas in because Texas beat Bama earlier in the season. Michigan and Washington, they were shooings with their undefeated records as well. The committee clearly went with who they thought were the best four teams right now instead of like who had the best overall season uh, resume. Um, I didn't agree with it. I probably would have taken out Texas as difficult as that would have been. Now, Dave, next year the playoffs expand to a dozen teams. Do you see the same kind of problem happening for whoever that will be? I mean, yes, but next year um, there's going to be six automatic bids. I mean, five maybe, depending on the demise of the Pac-12, and then the committee is going to decide the rest. So there's a clear path for every team. You know, you win every game or you win your conference and you're in the playoffs. It's a shoe-in. So whatever team is looking for that 12th spot, you know, already had a clear opportunity to make it and they didn't. Uh, so now this four-team playoff, I mean, it's certainly better than the two-team BCS we had before it. Uh, but I mean, what happened yesterday was inevitable when you have four playoff spots, 
five power conferences. In my opinion, it was set up to fail. All right, Dave, now let's look at golf. Tiger Woods made his return from injury this past weekend, finishing 18th in his own tournament in the Bahamas. What's the consensus on how he looked? You know, I think it depended on who you talked to and kind of how you looked at it. You know, he completed 72 rounds of golf without wincing in pain or limping all over the golf course. Uh, and he finished 18th overall. But on the negative side, there was only 20 golfers and he was 20 shots off the lead. So I would say it's at least a start in the right direction. You know, he's still the top attraction in golf. Uh, everyone hopes to see him returning to his winning ways. It looks like he's still got plenty of work to do in that area. He's also 47 years old now. Now he's hoping to play one event uh, per month next season. It looks like he could at least do that. Maybe he's got some magic left. We'll still have to see. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Thank you very much, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Dave. All right, next up, garlic is an ancient plant, and not only is it essential flavor in many dishes, it's also good for you. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body to tell us all about the benefits of garlic. Garlic is an ancient plant belonging to the onion family. It has been consumed by humans for millennia. It possesses phenomenal dietary and medicinal properties. Multiple studies suggest that eating garlic can effectively reduce the risk of cancer. This includes oral, skin, ovarian, prostate, breast, lung, gastric, colorectal, liver and pancreatic. It's the rich flavonoids and compounds in garlic that add to its potent anti-cancer effects. In addition to this, research has confirmed garlic's efficacy in lowering blood pressure. In short, the allicin found in garlic has five beneficial effects. Let's take a closer look, starting with anti-cancer activity. Allicin can inhibit the growth of cancer cells and enhance the immune system's function. Next, let's look at vasodilation and blood pressure reduction. Allicin can relax blood vessel walls, lower blood pressure and improve circulation improve insulin sensitivity and blood sugar control. Allicin can promote the secretion and action of insulin. This reduces blood sugar levels. It's beneficial for individuals with diabetes. Improved sexual function. Allicin can alleviate symptoms of male impotence and enhance sexual function. Impotence is often associated with poor blood circulation. Anti-inflammatory and antioxidant activity. Allicin can combat damage from free radicals. This safeguards the functions of the liver and kidneys. Garlic also contains other essential nutrients such as vitamin C, various sulfur compounds and cysteine. These are beneficial for your health. Incorporating garlic into our diet in moderation can contribute to overall well-being. However, it's crucial not to rely solely on one type of food. This is because there are many factors that influence health. Pay attention to other health habits such as exercise, sleep and stress. These are equally vital for promoting health and longevity. An Italian city is on high alert for a leaning tower to collapse. The Garisenda Tower is a symbol of Bologna, Italy, but now city leaders say it doesn't have much longer. It's not the famous leaning tower of Pisa, but it's just as special. The tower was built in the 12th century and is leaning at an angle of four degrees. A new report found that it could collapse soon. The area around the tower has been blocked off since October. Inspectors have since found that the tower's base has deteriorated as a result. The city council announced they will be building a protective barrier around the area, forming a possible collapse zone. It will also help prevent the, sounding, the surrounding buildings from being damaged. 
Residents say it's hard to imagine the city without the tower. This is a shame because the towers were a symbol of wealth and importance for the families who lived there. There are only two left, and if this one collapses too, it will be one tower less. Only one of the two would remain. The tower is a symbol of Bologna, and if it were to fall, it would be a real shame because we would lose one of the city's most important monuments. The two towers are a bit of a landmark for all of us. If you can't find someone because they're on a different street, you can say, look up, look for the two towers, and I'll meet you there. Even though everyone says they're going to fall, I think that because they've been standing for over 600 years, they're not going to fall in the next two months. In my opinion, they will stay up for at least another 70 years, maybe even 100. A spokesperson also says that while preparations for a possible collapse are underway, there is no imminent danger. And in case you're wondering, the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa, also in Italy, leans slightly more than this tower at an angle of five degrees. If you love adventure, this may be the job for you working at the world's most remote post office. You live on a tiny island in Antarctica surrounded by penguins. The job involves counting penguins, cleaning up their poop, and running a post office and museum. But it's not all fun and games. Living conditions are rough with no running water or showers for up to two weeks. There's also no internet or cell service, and you have to dispose of human and penguin waste. Despite the challenges, the job is highly popular and candidates must be physically and mentally strong. Rudolph the reindeer has arrived right on time for the New Jersey Christmas season. Well, not the Rudolph, but perhaps a cousin. The deer broke into Cedar Grove Elementary School in late November. The deer crashed through a window and then galloped through the halls. Police nicknamed the intruder after Santa's lead reindeer. Officers said they attempted to make an arrest. Video footage captured police in pursuit as the animal jumped onto desks in a nearby classroom. Officers were ultimately able to lead the deer to one of the school's exit doors. The Toms River Police Department posted the video on Instagram. The post included a disclaimer that read, no reindeer were injured during filming. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.